0: Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl is someone you may know from his other podcast, the 30 Love Podcast, which has been extremely prolific during the U.S. Open. You've released something like 10 episodes, I think, during the fortnight.
1: 14, uh, but Jeff is usually more precise with numbers, don't fear. 14, really? I tried to do an average of one per day, or I realized I did when I did the last one and pretended that was the plan. Does that, that doesn't count the Tennis Abstract podcast. That's
0: just 30 Love? Just 30 Love. Wow. Well, that, that is impressive. I think the logistics of that would, would deter me even without the actual recording of the podcast.
1: So five episodes are just me talking to myself.
0: Okay. Got to make up the numbers. Much like the Tennis Abstract Podcast often is for me. I'm sorry to everyone about that. Um, so that's great. Um, a few of those episodes are specifically about the men's and women's finals having happened just in the last couple days. So if if you don't get enough as a listener out of today's Tennis Abstract Podcast, I hope you'll listen to those as well to check those out. Um Just for the record, we're recording this on Monday mornings, or about a little more than 12 hours removed from the Djokovic-Del Potro final. Uh, And we have a lot to cover since our last episode, which I believe was on Tuesday, so a little less than a week ago, midway through the slam. One thing we are not going to talk about on episode 32 is the brouhaha between Serena Williams and umpired Carlos Ramos that has dominated the news for the last... I don't know, 36 hours or so. If you want to hear about that, Carl has done two and a half episodes of 30 Love about that with some other guests who would be happier to talk about it than I would be. I've also written something at The Economist about it. I've written something in my blog about it. I feel like it might be a little overdone at this point, And there's a lot of other things to talk about. One of those things is the present and future for Naomi Osaka, which I, I want to give some attention to But I want to circle back to that after we talk about the men's final, since that is fresh in Carl's mind, since he was lucky enough to be there. Carl, you were at Djokovic Del Potro last night. Tell me what happened.
1: It was a really long match that never felt really in doubt. And I don't know how much of that is retrospect, but other than the second set when Delpo had two or three chances to take a break lead late in the set... Djokovic was kind of ahead in every set throughout and seemed to have Delpo on a string. Like even when Delpo was was gaining it felt like it was more Djokovic errors than Del Potro unleashing his lethal forehand and and having it connect more than it missed. And it it was one of those frustrating for a Djokovic opponent kind of days where Djokovic Looks like he can't miss, looks like he can't be hit out of a point, looks like he has a really good plan and is executing it brilliant, brilliantly. I don't think it's frustrating at all for fans. I think it's beautiful to watch, but Del Potro seemed frustrated throughout and, and said as much afterwards. He, he said basically he tried with every shot he had and he just couldn't get the edge over Djokovic. So the stats were actually quite close in the end Djokovic won slightly higher percentage of return points but he was managing the match really well and ended up winning it 6-3 7-6 6-3 so that gives you an idea of how how close the match ultimately was so this has been a
0: a really great comeback for Djokovic i mean that's understating it you couldn't ask for much more than bouncing back from his french open loss to auto and Winning Wimbledon, winning Cincinnati, and winning the U.S. Open. Really the only thing marring his record is a loss to Tsitsipas in Toronto. That's it. Um, Carl, I'm guessing you saw both the semifinal and the final of Wimbledon, and then also the Cincinnati final we've talked about a little bit the last couple of weeks. How do you think Djokovic compares? Is, is, is he performing at a consistent level? Is he still gaining strength? Where does he stand at this point?
1: I think he's still gaining strength. I don't think we've seen peak Djokovic of 2015, or if you prefer 2011, quite yet. I I think he's still finding his way. I mean, against Rafa on grass, I think peak Novak wins that match more easily than, than this one who went deep into the fifth set. And he... Struggled at times in Cincinnati. He lost a couple of sets early at the U.S. Open, including to Tennis Sandgren. These are hold. These are high standards we're holding him to in, in that it's not typical for a player to win a major without dropping a set and looking dominant throughout. But those are the kinds of standards that Djokovic had been setting in the past. And I think he's also dealing with a more fractured field. The draw didn't open up to the same extent it did in... The U.S. Open last year when Rafa won but until the final Novak wasn't you know, playing the highest ranked players and I, I think that's a good thing I think that means he has more room to grow and if he doesn't grow because it's reasonable for a 31 year old to not be quite at his peak form that if some of the players who have been off kind of come back we could have a very competitive end of the year or Australian Open next year
0: yeah, they're, um, they're, there's good chances to, to have some, some of these big showdowns happen if if some of these players can peak at the same time. And we're still waiting to see if Andy Murray can come back to any anything close to where he was. My ELO ratings, which at least theoretically take into account layoffs, they still have Murray at number six, uh, despite some of his early losses. So... There's a chance, if if that's accurate, he's he's still within shouting distance of that level. And, of course, we have the, the big three right now of Rafa Novak and Djokovic, who won every slam for the last two years.
1: Rafa Novak and Roger, unless you're giving Novak two spots in the big three, which is fair, given what he's been doing.
0: Yep, that's exactly what I meant. Um, so it's really these three guys. And I, I updated my ELO ratings this morning. Uh, based on the US Open. And I, I forget where, where it was before. I think Novak was up to number three. And now, this morning, he's up to number two behind Rafa in the overall ratings. And he's up to number one on hard courts uh, in the surface-specific ratings, which of course means he's ahead of Federer as well as everyone else. Do you think those are, are an accurate representation of
1: where he's at right now? Yeah, pretty close. I think there's a case that he's number one overall. And also, I think, understandably, your ELO ratings aren't built to yet take into account that Rafa retired with knee pain and could be out for a bit and maybe not back to 100% when we next see him. So, yeah, I think these are very reasonable ratings and we could look back later and say that Novak was probably already number one at this point.
0: Yeah, and if Rafa does take a decent amount of time off. Like if, if he misses the rest of the season, for instance, then my, my ratings at least will knock him down. I think a hundred points until he comes back. So, um, so it's possible that, yeah, we will look back at this time and see that Novak was pretty much the number one at, at this moment. Um, would you say Djokovic is the Australian open favorite at
1: this point? Yes. I I got almost immediately after the men's final yesterday as, as I, have often gotten after the U.S. Open on the men's and women's side a lot of questions from people. How much will US, How many slam titles will the U.S. Open champ win the next year? And the numbers I was getting back on, on Djokovic were two, and I think almost everyone would count Australian as one of them, given that's where he's been the most successful. Uh, so I, I don't think he's up to 50% to win the Australian Open, but I don't see how anyone else can be the favorite Rogers won the last two, but has looked, if not his age, maybe his age minus four years for the last five months, six months. And Rafa is questionable on hard courts, just health-wise, because at at both hard court slams this year, he retired from matches. So I think that that leaves it pretty open for Novak to be the favorite.
0: Yeah, and... We have to remember that Federer lost here to John Millman, who then lost to Novak Djokovic. So, by the transitive law of tennis, Djokovic is is the favorite, having beaten Federer one step removed. Um,
1: the yeah. Australian winning the Australian Open.
0: Oh, there we go. That would that would be a story. Millman's probably not the the Australian favorite to win the Australian Open, but boy, that would be interesting
1: um okay i think we should just spend the next four months of the show previewing the australian open
0: that's pretty much what we're gonna do right isn't that what people do
1: that's pretty much what people do
0: yeah um we could talk about carlos ramos for the next four months but i've already said we're not doing that so that really does just leave us with australian open previews so listeners i hope you're excited we've got i don't know potentially 16 more episodes of this it's gonna be great I want to talk a little bit more about Del Potro. Um, he's been he's been back long enough that you know, we have a pretty good sense of what he's physically capable of. I mean, he's he's still I don't know if he's found his equilibrium of, of how he's going to balance the uh, the the topspin backhand and the slice backhand because he's he's hitting more slices than he did before all of his wrist injuries started, which makes sense and might be a decent tactical play anyway but do you think that's something that holds him back I mean do you think his uh, do you think that if if Del Potro had the backhand that he had pre-injury we might be having a different conversation
1: today yeah I think that's possible although I think it's also possible his backhand is better now and that he just didn't use it optimally against Novak or that the Delpo of 2009 would have lost just as easily to Novak yesterday. You know, I think he he mixes in enough variety that it keeps opponents guessing, and it also gives him room to drift more into the, you know, to cover more the forehand side and still get back with one hand and slice the ball back. It, the slice wasn't at its best against Novak, and some of that is the quality of shots he was getting, but... At at other stages of the tournament and throughout this year when he's built himself into a very credible top four player, he's really neutralized points where the opponent was ahead with a good deep low slice and he's hit some backhand down the line winners including on passing shots and he was hitting backhand winners against Rafa, granted it was an injured Rafa but it was still some, some really impressive hard hit. Back end, so I I think it's possible it's better overall, even though it didn't look like it yesterday.
0: That's interesting. I I before we started recording, I was looking at the match charting stats since uh, the one of our most reliable match charters, Ado, uh, already did the men's final. So thanks to him, as always, for all of his hard work, and that means we have shot by shot stats to look at from last night and. Nothing really pops out. I mean, here here are the raw numbers. We have 168 topspin backhands, 117 uh, slice backhands. So I don't know. That's three to two, something like that. Um, mo- there were a handful of winners, not a ton of winners, uh, but they all all came on the topspin backhand, as you'd expect. But a little more surprising. If you look at the result of points when when he hit the different kinds of backhands he won more points that he sliced in than when he hit topspin backhands in i'm not sure if that really tells us anything i mean I, that's something i haven't researched at all it looks like that the tour average in points with uh, with slices is actually better than the tour average in points with top spin backhands which I, i'm at a loss at the moment for an explanation for that but given that the unforced error numbers are about the same, uh, there aren't a ton more winners, on, or a few more point ending shots on the on the top pin side, but there is isn't an overwhelming difference. It isn't like he has this dominating shot that now he can't hit all the time. It does look like he's he's found a kind of balance. And maybe, as you say, maybe he is getting some, some benefit out of the variety and, and finding places where the slice back end maybe would have been the, the smart shot in the first place, even before he was hitting it as much.
1: Yeah, one thing that the match charting project I think doesn't automatically spit out but which as the incredible resource it is would allow for analysis is to test this notion that I think a lot of people have that a good slice backhand sets up a forehand because it forces your opponent to hit cross court so you know where the ball is gonna be and they can't hit a very aggressive shot because they're hitting off a low ball. So you have time to get in position to hit a forehand and that certainly happened at times in the final i think Delpo often missed those forehands and those can be low percentage forehands hit out of the doubles alley at times but i wonder to what extent that could explain the stats suggesting that slices are more often hit in points 1 than topspin backhands are
0: yeah another thing that occurred to me is is that a fair number of slices are approach shots uh, and I'm guessing approach shots are more likely to happen in points one. Uh, but but yeah, we'd have to dig into the numbers to know that. And it's not a big difference. I, I think that if you think about situations where some players would hit a topspin top backhand and others would hit a slice, in those specific situations, you'd expect to win more with the topspin backhand. That's a potentially more damaging shot. But maybe the situations aren't the same. So definitely need some more research. But... In any case, the, the, I think it's fair to say that this the slice isn't holding Delpo back a great deal, um, and certainly the, the fact that he's here in a Grand Slam final, even if it didn't go the way he would have hoped, um, he's, he's winning a lot of matches. I mean, he's, he's a legit number three player right now, uh, well, number four, now that Djokovic back, is back to number three. He's a legit top four, top five player, uh, even
1: if he has had to compromise some over the years. Um, you know, I can remember with Delpo at various times in his various comebacks. And, you know, he's had four wrist surgeries is the stat you always hear. And feels like even more periods where he's coming back from time off and trying to get back to his former self. At at times I've heard him say that he needs to work on his serve and his forehand, serve and forehand. And I used to find it funny because it was kind of obvious that the backhand was what was being held back by his wrist, but it makes sense that if he could keep improving his serve and forehand, making his forehand more reliable and getting more mileage on the serve, hitting spots more, that the backhand would become increasingly irrelevant. And we see that with a lot of players, that they they work on the serve and forehand. So, you know, I think it's it's smart to look at how Delpo's backhand is doing and, and what effect it's having, but I think he wins the second set if he doesn't net so many forehands on big points and forehands that are hit from offensive positions. Uh, I think he holds some of the times he gets broken if he is more consistent on the serve. So while we are focused on the part of his game that he's had to rebuild, I think he throughout has wisely been focused on his trance.
0: Yeah. And, and that's maybe a conversation for another day that we can dig into more, but Especially when we're talking about a backhand being being the weaker side, then it seems like most players, if they're if they're at a level to to which we're going to talk about them on this podcast, then their their weak side is still very very good. I mean, it's going it's going to keep them in points. It's not going to blatantly lose them very many matches, unless we're talking about Jack Sox backhand, maybe. Uh, but it's it's good enough, let's say, and increasing good enough to a little better than good enough is... I don't know if that makes a difference, but if you can take Del Potro's forehand and reduce the error rate by 5% or 10% without losing speed or accuracy, then yeah, I mean, that's that's 5 or 10 points a match, and that flips the result of some some of his close matches. Uh, and I don't think improving his backhand necessarily does that, especially against someone like Djokovic. I mean, if his backhand is a little bit better then. Djokovic is still in the rally with you, just like he was before. So I think there's a lot of truth in that, and it probably goes beyond Del Potro's specific circumstance. Um, on Del Potro, it, it, it's interesting to me that now he's, I mean, it's only been a few weeks, but he's ensconced in the in the top four, uh, in there with Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer now. Let's say hypothetically a year from now or let's say end of the season 2019 um, for a kind of round number on the calendar. Let's say Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal are one, two, three in some order. That leaves one more place in the top four. Do you think that guy is Del Potro next year or Alexander Zverev or maybe Andy Murray or somebody else?
1: Yeah, those those probably are the top three picks. I mean, obviously... We're not mentioning Alex Dimonor, and that's a little unfair because he, he should probably be the favorite. But maybe maybe that'll be 2021. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's Del Potro. I'm really worried about Murray just from kind of the, the tennis he's played but also the comments he's made since coming back and references to best-of-five tennis and that being the reason he didn't play Wimbledon, isn't playing Davis Cup so i discount him zverev i keep gaining faith and then a slam comes around and i lose faith he's prob he probably should be the pick but del potro will be 30 and, and that's younger than the theoretical top three and the current top three so so why not the other name that comes to mind to me out of this tournament is dominic teams i mean he had he was so close to beating Rafa in the quarterfinal and that was a really big step for him off of clay. So I, I shouldn't make too much of it, but he also beat Kevin Anderson pretty convincingly in the round before, Anderson being the finalist the year before and certainly someone I would have favored heavily over Team on hard courts. So if Team can can start showing what he did at the US Open where he really seemed to be stepping into the court more, playing more aggressively, if he can keep doing that off of clay, then he has a shot at being in that top four too.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about team, but he's been close in the past. He's not that far off now. Um, he's he's got quarterfinal points from the U.S. Open now, which is a first. So, so yeah, the potential is there. I mean, there's the, even though the clay court season is a minority of the the whole year, there are a lot of points to be. Piled up on clay, and if if he does consistently make semifinals or finals in the big clay court tournaments, that's that's a lot of ranking points. So as as you point out, if he can if he can build on this and do a little better at some of these summer hard court events or even the indoor hard court events coming up on the calendar, then and yeah, it's easy to see him pulling that off. So could be interesting. I mean, and of course by the end of next year, maybe it'll sound ridiculous to be talking about a Federer-Djokovic-Nadal top three. I mean, a lot can happen with guys, as we've seen. I mean, it, one thing I was thinking about when you mentioned Murray's status right now is I just stumbled on a couple of things I wrote at the end of 2016, early 2017, when Murray briefly took over number one, and it seemed like tennis was, sort of men's tennis was boiling down to this showdown between Djokovic and Murray. And that showdown lasted pretty much one match, the 2017 Doha final. And then... In Which in the retrospect, final.
1: they both lost, given what happened next.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's It's been downhill since then. And, and Murray's been irrelevant for a long time. Djokovic was off the stage for a long time. And yeah, who knows if we're going to see these two guys play each other again. I mean, as, as unfortunate as that sounds. So... Yeah, I mean that was that was not even two years ago. I mean, maybe what nineteen months or so ago. So a lot can happen. I mean, maybe Del Potro team and Zverev will all be in the top three. I wouldn't rush to put money on that, but you know, stranger things have happened. Um, okay, so let's let's call time on Djokovic Del Potro. I want to come back to some of these men's tennis topics, especially uh, especially team on hard courts and some of his tactics there. But I also want to talk about Naomi Osaka and some of her peers. I mean, this was a tremendous tournament for Osaka. I mean, obviously she won. This is her first Grand Slam title. She's only 20 years old. She... She dropped serve, like, I don't know, three times or four times in the whole tournament. She double-bageled Alexandra Saznovich in the third round. Just, I don't think anybody saw this coming. She won Indian Wells earlier this year, but apart from that, there wasn't a lot lot of reason to say, you know, this is her year or she's the player to watch. Uh, What do you think about this? We've seen some surprise winners with Sloane Stephens last year and Ostapenko at the French Open. Do you do you think that Osaka has announced herself as like like a megastar like a future great or it, do you think this could be a, i don't know I'm giving you pretty lame options but is 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 this maybe a one hit wonder what do you what do you think about Osaka's future
1: I think when her career is done it'll be a great one and we'll look back on this as where she really arrived but I don't know what the sequence is going to be. I think there's a pretty good chance we're not going to see her in another Grand Slam final for a while just because of what she's done thus far. I mean, in between Indian Wells and the U.S. Open, she didn't win more than a couple of matches at pretty much every event. She entered. She had lost three straight matches and five straight sets coming into the U.S. Open, and she had— kind of hit a wall at grand slams in the third round she'd been great in the second round she'd reached a bunch of third rounds very impressive for a 20 year old and she usually lost them i think she'd won one before the u.s open so we we've seen before players of of various ages having a big breakthrough grand slam tournament and thought okay maybe this is suddenly the start of a new phase of their career, and it usually isn't. Usually it is just one two-week period. I mean, Sloane Stevens is an interesting example. She wasn't as young as Osaka when she won the U.S. Open last year, but it came somewhat out of nowhere, and she's had a really good next 12 months. She made the French Open final. She won Miami. I could see something like that in the next 12 months for Osaka. I think that would be a good next 12 months. One thing to to note is she did hold serve incredibly well, but in some of the later rounds, she was facing a lot of break points and saving them all. And I know this is kind of a boring trope for me by now, but being clutched like that is probably not a repeatable skill, at least at the level of professional tennis players. So that Keys match, which looked uncomplicated 6-2, 6-4 if she had saved break points at a normal rate for her, instead of 13 for 13, that could very well have gone three sets and gone the other way.
0: Yeah, definitely. I was thinking the same thing during the keys match. I mean, it it makes for a great, a a great story that she was thinking about how much she wanted to face Serena. And that's why she saved all those break points. But yeah, that's not sustainable. Um, even if it is sustainable, then usually Serena is not in the next round. So it's, it's not going to help her very often. Um, the other 20-year-old who was a big story in this tournament was arena Sabalenka, who, if anything, hits even harder than Osaka. And they played each other in the fourth round. Sabalenka is the only player to take a set from Osaka and broke her twice in that set, actually. I think it was 6-2 six, six Sabalenka in the second set. So a force to be reckoned with, for sure. And it's someone we talked about I forget whether it was our last episode or the one before that, but she's coming off a win in New Haven. She's really taken a step forward this year. I think she's number six or number seven already in my ELO ratings, even though the um, the WTA rankings haven't quite caught up with that. Um, what do you think long-term, who do you think has the better career, Osaka or Sabalenka?
1: I think Osaka, but I think I'm probably also being swayed somewhat by... won their very very tight match like who knows maybe we'd be talking about Sabalenko US Open champion if she'd won that fourth rounder but getting to see Osaka against top players especially in those last two rounds and and see what she could do made me really impressed with her with her game kind of holding up against any kind of attack because Madison Keyes and Serena Williams hit pretty hard too and her serve as we've discussed, even if she had a somewhat unsustainable level of break point saving, it was, it was pretty awesome. And her, her movement, her poise throughout the match, her poise during certain things we're not going to talk about in the final. I, I'm impressed. And she's starting with a one, nothing head start on Sabalenka and slam titles.
0: <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And the, the serve is really impressive. Um, I uh, I came in a little bit skeptical about Osaka just because I, I've I've watched a lot of matches thus far and I think I watched two or three of the matches in Indian Wells. Obviously, she's a very good young player with a lot of promise, but I didn't really I didn't see this coming. And I mean, I'm sh- I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I d- didn't expect to be talking about her this much after the U.S. Open. Um, but yeah, it seems like the serve really took a step forward. Uh, some other. Some other small gaps in her game in her game have been plugged a bit, so so yeah. I mean, m- maybe she is on the way up and onto some really great things. I think Sabalenka is as well. I wouldn't be surprised if both of these women have a slam or another slam in them, and I wouldn't be shocked if Sabalenka turns out to be number one and has you know six or eight slams in her. I think she could be that good, uh, but you know it's always always dangerous making these predictions for people barely out of their teens. So, having having gone on record saying that it's dangerous to make predictions about women just out of their teens. I want to talk about a few of these other players. Last week we were talking about the possible futures for for the most interesting young players on the ATP side. I've got a list of 6 wta to talk about. Osaka and Sabalenka are two of them. There are three 21-year-olds who I think are interesting. Um, Ostapenko, who, as we say, has won a slam. Daria Kazakina, who's about the same age, but hasn't done as well at slams. Belinda Bencic, who also hasn't done anything really at a slam, but has come back from injury and is back in the top 40 now. She was in the top 10 not that long ago. Um, And also, we have the youngest player in the group, Marketa Vondrosheva, She's 19. She made the fourth round for the first time after a pretty crazy match against Kiki Burtons in the third round at the U.S. Open this year. Um, of this group, I would say specifically Osaka, Sabalenka, Ostapenko. Um, do you think that Osaka and Sabalenka are the are the sort of leaders in the clubhouse for the best career among this bunch?
1: I think Ostapenko has a case. She, she has another year of play, so maybe... That makes it more of a concern that she hasn't done more during that time since winning the French Open title. But she's, she's held up pretty well. She's had good results in a number of big tournaments and, and played evenly or, or beaten some top players. So I, I'd, I'd keep her in that group. And certainly she belongs in that group in terms of firepower.
0: What about Kazakhina? I mean, it, it, it's funny to make this comparison now. It's it's been a the comparison between Ostapenko and Kazakhina has been one people have been making for a long time, and it actually came up in our very first podcast right after the twenty seventeen Charleston final. And at that time I was expecting more from Kazakhina, and a few weeks later Ostapenko won the French Open. Uh, but right now they're they're right next to each other in the rankings at ten and eleven, and they're basically the same age. Um Do you think that Kazakina is a breakout waiting to happen?
1: I do. I do. Uh, I I think she probably won one of the matches of the year against Venus Williams at Indian Wells in the semis and lost to who else but the star of the show, Naomi Osaka. And she had a good run at the French Open and then lost to the eventual runner-up, Sloane Stephens. She had a good run at Wimbledon and lost to the eventual winner, Kerber. So she's, she's been close and been pretty consistent, put up good results, generally lost to good players when she's lost. I think those are all good signs. That means she's giving herself a lot of opportunities to break through.
0: Yeah, and it's also important to remember with this group that at least the first four we've talked about, Osaka, Sabalenka, Ostapenko, and Kazakhina. the first three of those are all really big hitters. Um, Kazakina is not... I mean, in, in, in by aggression score, Kazakina is close to the bottom. I mean, she's in, almost in Wozniacki territory. See, bottom is right. so
1: judgmental. Well, it's, it's close it's to number. one end of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I was just imagining a list with the biggest numbers on top, so I, I I wasn't implying a judgment, but that's why I said said it the way I did. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kazakina is, is near the Wozniacki end of the spectrum, and Caroline Wozniacki notwithstanding, it seems like the the big hitters uh, get bigger results sooner in their careers, even if they don't necessarily go on to the best careers. I mean, think about Simona Halep. It's taken her a long time to... I mean, she finally won her slam this year. Angelique Kerber was, I believe, even older when she won her first slam. She's in the same category Uh so it might just take a little longer for Kazakina to fully mature and become as dangerous of a player as she's going to be. Whereas on a good day from Sabalenka or Osaka, we might be looking at peak career level from that player. Um, but yeah, I, I'm with you, Carl, that Kazakina continues to be one to watch and it might not be next year. It might not even be the year after that, but wouldn't be surprised at all if she has a couple slams in her and overtakes some of these other women. Um, speaking of all these slams <laughs> it's funny i was i was expecting after it, it, when i thought that osaka might win in in saturday's final i was expecting everyone to write these identical stories about parody in the the women's tour because we've had eight slams with eight different winners in a row and of course other events overtook that so the the main narrative was very very different but the fact still holds true. The last eight Grand Slams on the women's side have had eight different winners. Um, what do you think the chances are that the Australian Open makes that nine?
1: It's getting harder each time, for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, we're running out of potential players. Yeah, only a hundred. There will only be a hundred and twenty in the draw who haven't won.
1: Yes, and. The last two, if Serena Williams had won the final, which she was probably both times favored to do, it would have broken the streak because she won the 2017 Australian Open. Initially, she was going to be my pick for who would be number nine. And I remember, no, she is one of the eight. That was right at the beginning. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I see some names who, who are not in that group of eight who could do it, including some who have never won. Grand Slam titles. I, I'm a fan of Caroline Garcia. I don't really think she'll win. But, you know, she's number four and she she would count. Kvitova hasn't won in a while, but it seems kind of unlikely she'd win off of grass at this point. So maybe Svitolina, who we've talked about recently, is the is the best bet to keep the streak going. Not
0: Victoria Golubik?
1: Well, I wanted to leave her for you for you to pick, but obviously second to Golubik.
0: Yeah, I'm on record predicting a Golubik, um gasparian Australian Open final in 2021, but we'll have to check in on that in a couple of years. That's a pretty old forecast, and <laughs> a, lo- a lot of things can happen, um, including... And have happened. Both, yeah, both of them need to make it into the top 100, probably. Um, yeah, Svitolina, I think, is, uh, I don't know, maybe the most obvious pick... Um, Kvitová is interesting for some reason. I I wasn't thinking about her. Maybe because I just wasn't considering players who already won slams. But uh, but yeah, she would make it nine. And and Garcia is in the mix. Of course, Daria Kazakina is one who we were just talking about. She would would do that too. Plishkova. Plishkova, Yeah. It's, it's there's a decent chance this happens. I think. Um, where if you had to pick a number, where would you put the odds that that we have another? Uh, we, that we have nine in a row in Australia.
1: Forty percent. Forty percent. Wow. Okay. Well, we just we just gave some good contenders. Plus, I mean, there are people we're not naming. Like, if we were doing this exercise about eight in a row, probably we wouldn't have named Osaka a few weeks ago.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah, and I mean, like I kind of said a few minutes ago, if Sabalenka blasts her way through the draw like Osaka did in, in New York. I would not be surprised by that at all. Uh, and come to think of it, given given how much she's climbed in the ELO ratings, I wouldn't be surprised if my, my model for the Australian Open gives us that 40% chance, largely because of Sabalenka and, of course, with Svitolina and Kvitova. I mean, at, at various points in New York, come. Um, Svitolina was, was the favorite in my model. Uh, Sabalenka was the favorite in my model. My model didn't do that well <laughs> with how it actually turned out. <laughs> but I think, I, I think those the, there was logic behind that at the time. I mean, it, it's, the WTA has just flat out been, been tough to pick. I mean, that, that's another, another topic worth exploring. Do you think that's likely to change anytime soon? Are, are, are we going to get more stability on the women's side?
1: I think we've been reminded what stability on the women's side looks like in Serena Williams reaching two straight finals. I mean, that that's the main stability we've had for the last, I don't know, 10 years. And maybe since she has made two straight finals, she'll keep making finals and reach number one again and win multiple slams next year. Seems... Kind of unlikely, but I could be overreacting to her losing those finals and, and not putting much, as much stock as I should in her reaching them, despite it being pretty early in her comeback. I mean, we talked about how quickly Djokovic came back. And I think if Williams had won those two finals at Wimbledon US Open like Djokovic did, we'd be marveling at hers much more.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I, one of the matches I was watching, I think it was Chris Effort. Doing the commentary and she was talking about how she she would expect to see or would really like to see one of these women in the top ten take take a step a step forward and become become sort of the, the consistent late round grand slam contender um, and just doesn't see it happening. If you had to pick somebody out of the out of the current crop who's not Serena, is there anybody you see who could be that player?
1: Halep and Kerber have done it at times in terms of being consistent fixtures late in, in slams. So they seem most likely, but even so it doesn't seem that likely to me. Yeah. I, I
0: have a tough time seeing it too. I would obviously, I would love to see it happen with Halep. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just being optimistic because I, I've, I've already invested in this publicly a few times, but I can see Svitolina becoming that person, but it's it's kind of tough to back that up since she's hasn't even really done it once at a slam. So that's a, a little bit too much to ask for this point. But I think if we had to look at a player and, and talk about who could do it, she's she's in
1: the conversation. Jeff, um, what do you think yeah. when we talk about players having trouble stepping up at slams, especially in the WTA? when we're talking about the same format, albeit with more rest between, between matches, what, what would, what do you think is the difference?
0: I don't know. I mean, one, one theory, I don't know how on earth you would test this, but I remember a, a tennis instructional book I read when I was a kid that I think it, it, it had some training plans from Mary Jo Fernandez, which dates me a little bit um, that it, it it was it was almost like like marathon training plans like they were built around peaking at certain points in the season and so Mary Joe Fernandez had these these plans where she would be able to play in any given week but the whole year was designed around being at her best at the slams and i know from hearing coaches give interviews and and commentators talk that a lot of players do that i mean maybe most players do that but i wonder if what we're seeing is a lot of the the fringy players are doing that and are are more of a threat at slams or maybe we're looking at Svitolina or Zverev or somebody like that who isn't doing that very well and i mean it's not that they're bad at the slams it's just that they're not any better at the slams than they are the rest of the time i mean like i say i don't know how to how on earth you test that but that's one possible explanation of why someone would have this set of of, um, unexpected results at slams.
1: Well, we should talk to Mary Jo.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We should, we should talk to Mary Joe. Don't think it really originated with her or ended with her. I think there's a lot of, a lot of current coaches would have some interesting things to say about that as well. Uh, although I'm sure Mary Jo would as well. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's tough. And, I don't know, with Zverev, we're still on the edge of being early enough in his career that you can write it off as a small sample or just some bad draws and then a couple of instances of bad luck. Svitolina maybe a little less so at this point, um, especially since she's had some really good seeds going into her last few slams. I don't know. And it's it's one of the big mysteries, and it seems like something that, that analysts should be able to figure out, but... Maybe there's just too much chance involved and and too many factors that we can't quantify. I don't know. Um, One more unexpected slam winner who was in the news this week that I wanted to talk about is not likely to be our number nine in Australia because she just retired. That's Francesca Schiavone. And Carl, I know you've long been a fan. She's got a great one-handed backhand. She played some really memorable matches going back a decade or so. Um, uh, can you talk about what, what Skiavone did for the WTA or, I mean, why she was so enjoyable to watch?
1: Yeah, I think she gave a lot of variety to the, to the sport and to the tour. One hand and backhand was unusual. She used it and her topspin forehand to attack the net and she had really nice touch at the net and she did all that on clay, which is not the surface you would associate with that approach and she took it all the way to one french open title and then the final the next year and she wasn't ever the top player on tour and she wasn't able to consistently deliver those kinds of results but she would occasionally make great runs and she's just such an exciting dynamic emotional player and then when she was well past her prime, she just kept playing. I think that was what, maybe my favorite thing about her career. She she was still enjoying playing. She was still winning matches occasionally. She was enjoying the training and the practice and it was broadcasting video of it to her followers. And I, I was surprised when she retired, even though based on her age and her her recent level, it it would have looked to some players like, well, past time to retire. I thought she was just going to keep going until there wasn't a tournament she could play.
0: Yeah, lots of similarities there with Tommy Robredo on the men's side. They really both seem to love the sport and stick around even if, to a lot of us, it's not evident what the point is. I mean, Robredo has said that he just loves tennis i mean i don't know i don't know if he expects to get back in the top 100 or or what but but he's he's sticking around to play more tennis even if that means going to challengers every week
1: um and he qualified for the us open
0: and he did yeah um yeah and yes giovanni was always a great player to watch and i think she said she's going into coaching definitely see her being a, a great coach so i'm sure we'll continue to see a lot of her around the tour and maybe winning Grand Slams in a different way in the future.
1: And playing Legends events. It's a great thing about tennis. We get to hold on to our favorites.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Even sometimes if we don't want to. And our least favorites, right? They, they really stick around. Yep. Yeah. Um, so as usual, we've we've gotten to the last three quarters of our episode and it's time to talk about doubles. <laughs> Fortunately, we made it before we ran out of time. Might not have left enough time since I think we've got three potential doubles topics here i want to start with jack sock and by implication mike bryan as well they they've won the u.s open men's doubles after winning wimbledon men's doubles as well so is that is that 20 for mike bryan or is that 18 i think think it's 18 18 right um and what i guess that's three for jack sock which is still pretty good yep um
1: given also that he's like 15 years younger my cry.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 15 years younger and he's got a good 20 years left in his possible doubles career. Uh he's still a decade away from his peak. So I've been really interested in I mean I've been interested in Jack Sock and his doubles prowess for a long time. I wrote an article for 538 about it a couple of years ago now. And at that time it was one of the most
1: ago. popular 538 articles about doubles ever published.
0: <laughs> wow. That that's an honor. That's all I can say. Definitely the most popular article I ever wrote for 538. <laughs> About the same amount of competition. Um, so he at that point, I rated him as the best doubles player in the world. And he must be pretty close now. I mean, I, I kind of wonder if, if he's the stronger player. If Mike Bryan made his way back to the Grand Slam winner circle because he upgraded his partner from, from Bob Bryan to, to Jack Sock. Do you think there's any truth in that, that maybe maybe Sock is actually the superior player in this pair?
1: Bob, I'm really sorry if you're listening, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, your ratings showed a few years ago that, or maybe it was two years ago, that Jack was the best doubles player in the world, and that was two years ago. So he's had two years to maybe get more experience, even though he's only played a sporadic double schedule. And in the meantime, Bob's gotten two years older. Mike and Bob have struggled to win Grand Slams. On the other hand, Mike and Bob were on the verge of number one in the world when Bob got injured. So they were playing really well. So they they would have been the favorites to win in Wimbledon in the U.S. Open if not for the injury. So I wouldn't hold it too, too harshly against Bob. But certainly at this moment, and this is relevant because Bob is hustling to try to get back into shape so that he can play London with Mike, not Jack, because Mike is in this great position where he's qualified with two partners. Um, At that moment, Jack will probably be the better partner, but I think Bob is going to be the better brother. So probably Mike should think long-term and think life-wise and, and stick with Bob.
0: Yeah, probably. Um, So that's what Mike should do. What about what Jack Sock should do? He is, Regardless of whether you like my ratings or what you think about him compared to Bob, he's one of the best doubles players in the world. I think most people would agree on that at this point. And there's a lot of partners out there who would love to play with him for a full season. Um he at the same time, he's had an absolutely abysmal year playing singles. I mean he he has kept a pretty good rating because he won the Paris Masters last year. So that's a lot of points. I think he's still hanging in the top twenty um but as soon as the parish masters points come off he could be out of the top 100 i think he's not even in the top 150 in the race he's i don't even know if he has a winning record this year it's it's horrible um if if you were jack sock would you just decide to to, to throw all your cards in the in, in the doubles basket i don't know if that's a valid metaphor but would you go doubles or or would you kind of would you continue to to try to split your focus and and hope to come back in singles while still winning these occasional doubles tournaments you play?
1: I would not give up on singles yet. I mean, not only did he win the Paris Masters last year, but he made the semis at the World Tour Finals by winning a couple matches in the round-robin stage. And, yeah, that's less than a year ago. So you got to have in your mind, hey, I'm still the same guy. I'm less than a year older I did all those things. I can do those things again. On the other hand, it's going to start to matter in a very real way if he really can't get some results together between now and the end of the year because you're right, he's 155th in the race. And if he and you know, he's going to get into the Paris Masters and the Shanghai Masters and whatever other events he wants to get into for the rest of the year and he has chances to get more points and to get his ranking up higher going into next year. But he could, if he doesn't do that, start facing choices where he is easily qualifying for doubles in various tour-level events. Even on the Australian Open. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He is no sure thing to get direct entry into the Australian Open. And he'll have to decide, do I want to go down a level and play a bunch of challengers to get my, my ranking up and get a lot of matches? Or do I want to play qualifying... If i can even get into qualifying at some of these other events because i know i can also play doubles and i'll have a good chance to win every time i play i mean the way the prize money is structured is a funny thing where if you win a doubles title that might get you about as much as if you make like the fourth round or or quarterfinal of an event but in terms of the long-term career and, and prestige and and his own interest that he stated over and over again, I think he's going to focus on singles to the detriment of doubles every time. And he said as much when somebody asked basically the question you just asked in the press conference after Zach Ryan won their semifinal at the U.S. Open, and, and the question was, you know, is, is Bob going to come back and take your spot? And Jack was like, please, please come back. I really need <laughs> I need to go win some singles matches.
0: Oh, that is outlining that whole thing pointed out to me that we could be facing a really ugly specter next summer, which is Jack Sock getting more wild cards. (laughs) That is the last thing the world needs.
1: Well, at least this time he will have earned, earned in scare quotes, the wild card by being a, a former top 10 player, a recent top 10 player. But yeah, it's not like he's coming back from injury. He's just coming back from a period of not winning singles matches.
0: Yeah, that's about as nice as you can put it. Um, okay, speaking of Sock, I did not see this because unfortunately I didn't get a chance to watch any doubles, but I, I read, I think it was from our friend Mike Cation, who was at the US Open calling on the a lot of the matches on the radio, that apparently Jack Sock was really aggressive on a lot of returns using the, the, the saber tactic to rush the net on on returns. Did you see that at all, Carl?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. You did?
0: Okay. Um, was it working?
1: I think he often missed the returns, but it seemed like it might be rattling servers, which is such a hard thing to measure and could be my imagination. Okay. We so, should probably explain what sabering is, or do you think it's such a generic term in tennis that people know?
0: Well, it's, it's when you have an old fashioned sword and you thrust it through someone's stomach, right?
1: It really makes it hard to serve on
0: subsequent points,
1: even if the stats don't show.
0: It.
1: <laughs> yeah um
0: yeah it's saber stands for sneak attack by roger federer was basically like treating the um, was chip and charging but without the chipping necessarily so taking a really aggressive return position and then charging the net behind it
1: it was like half um, falling and charging
0: yeah yeah basically um so it's a really unorthodox tactic we've seen curios do it a fair amount especially to roger uh, yeah, and the reason I wanted to talk about that was Alex Dimonor. We we talked about him a lot last week, but we didn't talk about this. He's often very aggressive on serve returns. Not maybe not quite saber level, but especially on some second serves, some first serve returns, he'll stand halfway between the service line and the baseline, and t- sometimes take the chance of of rushing the net behind his return. And he was, when I saw him doing this, it was against Marin Cilic, and that's 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 daring. I mean, that's a serious serve to be uh, coming in behind when you return. Um, and at the same time, the same tournament where you have Demonor doing this and curious, doing it against Roger and Jack Sox, sabering doubles returns. You also have this trend that Tom Parada wrote about, and you talked about on your podcast with him of players like Nadal and team and even Milos uh um, returning from way back to give themselves more time. So, same tournament, same surface, same incentives, obviously, to, you know, win return points. And you have players adopting really extreme tactics in different directions. Do you think this is maybe a trend that players are are more willing to experiment, or more, more willing to, to just go to the extremes to see what works than we've seen in the past?
1: I think so, and I certainly hope so. It, it would make sense to me that players watch each other players hear what's going on and players are always looking for something that'll work and not much works against a Cilic serve or against the Federer serve uh the doubles return team is always at a big disadvantage because of the guy at net on the serving team so it makes sense to try new things and it Makes sense to try them throughout a match, like try lots of different things. And that's a good way also to keep your opponents guessing, but it's not something we've seen a lot of in tennis. We've seen a lot of, I worry about my side of the net. I, I go in with my game plan kind of attitude. So I'm hopeful that that's, that we're seeing something different now. And maybe it takes someone like Nadal in the case of the way far back return or Federer in the case of the way far in return to persuade other players that it's okay to try it.
0: Yeah. Um, and it is worth noting that all these things we're talking about are on return. And I mean some of these things happen in the women's game as well, but we're talking about them all in the men's game. Those are the stories that have popped out to me. And uh, returning serve in men's tennis is hard. You don't win a lot of points. You win even fewer games. I think the tour average is I mean, maybe you win one in five return games. And if you're playing against a good server, it's going to be a lot less than that. So you have to think like Dustin Brown and Lucas Rosso did when in their respective upsets of Rafael Nadal. I mean, they they both played really low percentage aggressive tennis, but it was good enough to earn those breaks and, you know, one break per set or a couple surprise points in a tie break and bam, you've got that, you've got that upset. You don't get it every time because it's Rafael Nadal on the other side of the net, but Playing super high-risk tennis might be the smart move, if, especially if you're the underdog, which Damon Orr is against Chillich or against most players right now, or Jack Sock is against anyone who is playing singles against him, things like that. So if there's a place for experimentation, I, I think that's pretty clearly it, and it's good to see players
1: doing it. Yeah, I think you said it by saying you're going to win one in five return games or so on average and that is a very low percentage so what we normally think of as low percentage tennis might be higher percentage than that and yeah you don't have much to lose
0: yeah one of the as we start to wrap things up i have to point out one of the the most bizarre things that happened last week i think it was during nadal's semifinal match at the same time at a challenger in europe i think it was the quarter it would have been the quarterfinal on friday there was a quarterfinal at a Challenger in Europe between Lucas Rosol and Dustin Brown.
1: <laughs> the winner gets Rafa in the first round at Wimbledon next year.
0: Yeah, I think Dustin ended up winning. He made the final. He lost in the final, but still a good good result for Dustin Brown at this stage. But I see we're approaching the 1-hour mark. I'm starting to get serious about that inspired by Carl's 30-minute podcast. So Carl, 60 I think love. Thank you always, man. 60 love. That uh, that's a g- automatic that's actually a full game penalty. Thank you, Carlos Ramos. Um, And that's all I'll say about that. Thank you as always for joining me, Carl. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Thanks everyone for listening. That wraps up our US Open coverage and we will see you next time.